Ashes to ashes. Angels carried them away. Left this world. Six feet under. Bit the dust. Kicked the bucket. Bought the farm. Bought the farm. He bought the farm. Dodge City. Dead as a doornail. Gone, but not forgotten. Gone fishing. Gone home. Gone to heaven. Goner. Snuffed. Succumbed. Departed. It's Friday evening in Davis, California, a small city outside Sacramento. There's a huge harvest moon in the sky. In one suburban neighborhood, at the end of a cul-de-sac, is Joan Randall's house. It's a modest two-story home with a pickup truck in the driveway and two scarecrows in the front yard. Joan is rushing around inside, trying to keep herself busy. She looks like she's getting ready for dinner guests. But this is no dinner party. I'm Joan Randall, and um, it's my ex-husband who has just died and who's lying in the other room in a beautiful pine box. Joan and Mike had a rocky relationship. They were together, then they broke up. They were married, then they divorced. The last time they reconnected was three years ago, when Mike had a stroke. Mike came back into my life after a long time of being gone. I saw him once in like a dozen years. Joan agreed to care for him. Then, Mike was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer a few months ago. She wasn't interested in any of the conventional funeral options. She didn't want to hire a funeral director, and she didn't want to send him straight to the crematory. Here's this man who's got a broken family, isolated, la 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 Think about dying in a facility and then going off to be burned. It felt desolate. Joan wanted something different. She wanted to bring Mike home. When I thought about Mike's aloneness and isolation and dying in that state. The fact that I could bring him here. Was very good. (laughs) The American tradition is to pay someone else to manage and bury the dead. But Joan is a hands-on kind of woman. Just before Mike died, she talked with him about a home funeral. I, I talked to him and asked him, you know, had he given it any thought what happens after he dies? And he just points straight up, you know. And he made, you know, poof, a poof sound. <laughs> and I said, asked if he would hear what I would like to do. And so I went through it. He would die there. He would... His body would come home here to my house and be here for three days and people would be with him, talk to him, sing to him, play music or ignore him. <laughs> then after he would be cremated and I would take half his ashes and dust him over where he used to hunt here and the other half in Westfield in Wisconsin. And he was just perfect. He was giving me all these signs of absolute perfect. And so then it was just like boom. Was a go? Joan realized she couldn't do everything on her own. 
She remembered a woman who helped with another home funeral. My name is Heidi Boucher, and I am a natural death care provider. And I have been doing this for about, gosh, 25, 26, 27 years. Heidi is one of many people across the country who help others with home funerals. I think we as a society in this country are very quick to push things away that are uncomfortable. If you look at other countries, whether it's third world countries or modern countries, there is an acceptance of death in a very different way than it is here. It's part of life. There's nothing gruesome. There's nothing scary. It's what we are. Heidi was drawn into this work by a family friend when she was a teenager. Today, she sees home funerals as a movement that might counter the American fear of death. People are finding out that they actually can take more initiative and control over their loved ones who have passed on. I think people are really wanting to have more say. We've seen people make choices uh, as far as the food that they eat, the kind of cars they drive, where they send their children to school. Death is, is really the last frontier. Heidi has a day job in video production. She sees home death care as more of a calling than a service. She's not listed in the Yellow Pages. She doesn't have a website. People hear about what she does by word of mouth. I get phone calls from couples, uh, a husband and wife. We talk about logistics. Where do you want to be in your house? Well, let's look and see if we can get a casket in that room. How about over here? Well, what about the bird squawking when somebody's wanting to read verses? Well, let's put a blanket over the bird or let's move. You know, there's so many variables. And it's always very matter-of-fact and very, yes, we're going to the grocery store and we're getting eggs and butter, and yes, when I die, I'm going to wear a purple dress. Heidi and Joan talked on the phone a few weeks before Mike died to work out the details. Then today, when Mike died in the nursing facility, they were ready to go. She called me today around 4, 4.15, 4.20. She said he had died. So I immediately gathered all my things together and stopped at the store and bought the ice. Joan has cleared a spot in her small home office for Mike's casket. She pushed the file cabinets aside and moved the desk into a corner. A sliding glass door opens onto the front porch where the empty casket waits. Mike is undressed and laid out on a gurney along the open wall of the office. So this is Mike, and we have just bathed him with rosemary water and have oiled him with rosemary. And as you can feel, he's still really, really warm. The towel is put under the chin to keep the mouth up. As you can see, when I take the towel away, the mouth will drop open. So we try to do that. Or I take a, a scarf or a tie and go under the chin and come up on top of the head and tie it so that it holds it up. If that doesn't hold it up, and sometimes I'll put a little glue there, a little super glue to keep it closed. Heidi dresses Mike in some clothes Joan has laid out for him. It's an outfit Mike would have worn to his tool shop, something she thought he'd be comfortable in. We're putting on some, well first he has some gray, just sports socks. And we have some light denim 
jeans. I don't know if they're Wrangler or Levi's. And we're putting them on him right now. It's just a process of wiggling on, shifting. It's always interesting to see what people choose as their loved one's last outfit. And sometimes I'll be in my own closet and I'll think, gosh, what would, what would I wear? What, what do I want people to put on me? Once we get them in the casket, then we can fluff things and make things pretty. Most of us are connected to our clothing. You know, that favorite sweater, because I think it represents memories and feelings and good times. Or Then you see somebody like me taking scissors to it and people just go, oh my God, I can't believe that's happening. I had one woman saw me cut her dear friend's beautiful dress. I, you know, I said, that's the only way I can get it on. And she was horrified. <laughs> so we just ripped up the back of the shirt. And now we're putting his arm in the sleeve. Put that under. And I just bring this around. reminds me of when I used to put clothing on my kids when they were little, you know, trying to manipulate it. So the shirt that I'm putting on him is a light blue Oxford button-up short sleeve shirt. A classic in every man's wardrobe. And we're tucking him into his jeans. And he's all dressed in light blue. He looks very casual, but dignified. Joan asked two of her friends to come help. They didn't know Mike and aren't sure how to be around him, so Heidi puts them to work. So what we need to do is take the dry ice and we need to cut it into chunks. And I wrap it up in the one sheet like this. We're making like a little present. You have to work pretty quick because you don't want to breathe this stuff. Heidi will lie Mike's casket with the dry ice to slow the decomposition. So I'd like to get them nice and cold as quick as I can. <laughs> okay. But first, the group needs to transfer Mike into the casket. It's a simple wood box made from unfinished pine. All right, this is a brain teaser here. Heidi studies the casket as she figures out how to get Mike into it. So I think... One thing that would be easy, since it's a small room, is we lift him, one person pulls the gurney out of the way, pushes, now that might be too cumbersome, I think we just need to get him in the box and then move him. So, he's heavy, really heavy, so roll this, and then if you are over here, Joan, if you're over here. Okay, and one, two, three. Okay, no, one, two, three. <laughs> okay, ready? <sighs> Did it. So now I'm putting a towel under the pillow, which is under his head, to prop it up a little bit. 
when we put them in the casket. I always like to have people see the individual's hands because the hands are so important to an individual. We talk with our hands, we eat, we do so much that I really try and, and make sure that the hands are part of what people who are coming to view the body, that they will see them. It's hot, cold, hot, cold. The dry ice burns her hands as she tucks it around Mike's body. The lady at the grocery store, you know, I always get, so are you going camping or having a party? And I never really know what to say, but it's always the same thing. And one day I just said, you know what? No, actually, somebody has died and it's da da da. And she looked at me and she just said, cool. That will be 49.32, and you know, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. So, Joan, tell us what kind of a guy he was a little bit, or describe him in, in you know, 10 words. He was called Iron Mike because he could do it, whatever it was. Always, he could do it. That was, that was, this was interesting. I grabbed his hand and I felt like I was being grabbed back. I feel like he's holding my hand. For my own funeral, I would want people to be laughing and not crying. I want a funeral that is as large as possible. I think of what pictures I would want displayed near my casket. I do not want to be at my own funeral. I definitely want a home funeral. A home funeral, if I had a nice home. You know, I wouldn't want one in my apartment. I grew up in a family that did a lot of entertaining, always had people in the house. I mean, it'd just be like a bigger dinner party. She says, wake up, it's no use pretending. I'll keep stealing, breathing her. Birds are leaving over autumn's ending. One of us will die inside these arms. Eyes wide open. All home funerals are different. There is no set formula for how events will unfold. Most often, rituals are made up in the moment as families deal with logistics and confront their loss. Jim Wheaton and Kirsten Prokopowicz both faced unexpected deaths. They each found a way to say goodbye on their own terms. My name is Jim Wheaton. Six years ago, um, I was involved in a car accident in which my wife was killed. We were driving back actually from the Little League field right around dusk, and uh, uh, it was a narrow, winding, uh, two-lane road. And uh, my wife was actually trying to sleep a little bit. She was tired and uh, had taken off her seatbelt because it was pinching on her neck. And then a, uh, a deer leapt out, and I avoided it. I missed it, but then I hit a phone pole and she went uh, into the windshield. And I tried CPR, and, and it didn't work. My name's Kirsten Prokopowicz. My beautiful husband, Brian Prokopowicz. 
Mm, he was killed on his uh, motorcycle from a hit and run. About seven o'clock, seven fifteen, I started um, just getting really panicked and was concerned and wanted to go pick him up. He was on his motorcycle, and I wanted to go and pick him up. I didn't want him driving home. And I, my son and I had been just pacing, and and I, I got in the car and went and found him. I didn't find him. I found the accident. They wouldn't let me through. And I just knew. I knew. My wife and I, uh, I never really thought about funeral arrangements, of course, um, other than my wife and I had talked, and both of us had, had decided that we would be cremated, not buried. We didn't want to be in the ground someplace. And so, and neither my wife nor I uh, were religious. We're not part of any religious tradition at all. So it, we really did have to create this on our own. Neither Brian and I had really discussed what would happen if we died. Um, besides, you know, where we wanted, where he wanted to have his ashes scattered at his favorite surf spot on the North Coast at Secrets. I made a couple of decisions. Uh, one is that at the time, my boy, our boy, was just six, about to go on seven. And I decided that I would not, as my parents' generation did hide anything from him. That death was not something that should be distant or happens away where people simply disappear and you never have any role in it. So I decided that I would involve him early on. So I thought about it and I decided that I wanted to make the coffin myself. A friend and I went over to the <clears throat> recycled lumber place and I bought some really nice old oak uh, that I think had been flooring someplace. I got the dimensions, the maximum dimensions from the funeral home, because it has to fit through a pretty small door. And we went over to my shop. We, uh, we put out word to friends, and uh, probably 10 or a dozen people came over. And I taught people how to do woodworking, how to make finger joints for the corners, and uh, you know, how to make a top and how to make it fit, and, uh, and uh, brought the boy over as well. I got him out of school. And so together, he and I and a few friends uh, made the coffin. And uh, a friend said, well, let's just go back to your house and I'll have dinner. So we loaded the, uh, the coffin in the back of the pickup truck and hauled it back over here to this house um, and put it right here in the living room where we're sitting right now on the floor of the living room. And uh, all had dinner in the dining room. And so it's a, it's a little odd to have a coffin in your living room, um, especially when you know it's going to contain somebody you love the next day. My son, he was 14 when his dad died. I came home and told him that his, his dad had been hit on a motorcycle and was dead. Oh, oh my God. Um, just no, 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 no. And running around, no. Oh my God, oh my God, Mom, no. Uh, just shaking, we were both just shaking, just shaking with each other. He was dead set against having his dad come back home. He just, he couldn't see him. It was just too scary to see his dad dead. But I needed the closure. I needed to see him and be with him. And I wanted to touch him, touch his body. The next day we went down and I got death certificates and signed the release forms. And so by Thursday evening, we knew that the next morning that he could come home. 
So we organized to have um, a crew of women to come and prep him and get him cleaned up. And we'd put paints out and um, painted it his favorite color green. They were sitting underneath this persimmon tree here and a shadow of the persimmon tree went on to the casket. And, and so they sketched it on and went off from there and it was kind of ironic and neat because he had said that he would do a tattoo, if he ever felt like it, of a tree with the names of his family. And so that seemed so appropriate that they had drawn this on this casket. Word went out during the dinner that anyone who wanted to bring something to put in the coffin to go with her um, could do so. And boy, people started to show up during and after the dinner. And they brought flowers and photographs. People penned notes. We also pulled some things that were important to her. One of her quilts that she had been working on that she actually made with cloth that she'd bought on our honeymoon in Costa Rica. Then we, we all sat in a big circle around the coffin in the living room. And each person put their item in and told the story or not as they chose about what it was and why they were doing it and so forth. And again, the boy, uh, Jesse, was amazing. He got up partway through, and people, of course, crying, and it's very upsetting. And he walked into the room and came back, and he brought back a uh, box of Kleenex and started handing out Kleenex to people. Then when it was all over, we had this uh, coffin full of stuff. And uh, then he looked at me and said, Dad, where's my glue stick? And I said, glue stick? I don't know. It's probably up with your art stuff. He said, okay. And he ran upstairs, came back down and said, what do you need that for? He says, I want the pictures to be up. He didn't want the pictures to just cast in the bottom of the coffin. He wanted them up on the walls of the coffin so they could be seen. And so he very carefully sat there and he glue sticked all of the photos to the sides of the coffin. She says if I leave before you, darling, don't you waste me in the ground. I lay smiling like our sleeping children. One of us will die inside these arms. Eyes wide yesterday afternoon and I'm if you want to come out of curiosity I'm okay with that too okay you know what I mean I mean not too many people do this uh-huh you just go to um, L Street it is the day after Mike died the second day he's been in Joan's house mm-hmm. thanks bye okay Joan added some personal touches to the casket she laid two of his hunting bows and a set of arrows over the foot of the casket. She set up some candles, bear skulls from one of Mike's hunting trips, and a bottle of Jack Daniels. A prized deer head hangs on the wall overlooking the casket. 
This is in the record book. There's a record book um, called Pope and Young, record book for Bo. Joan also set Mike up with some essentials. She put a pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket and a lighter and a couple of bucks in his pants. Still, something was missing. His glasses. I had to clean him first. That was also a thing with us. He'd come home from work or he'd be wherever, and I'd look at his glasses. I'd say, how the hell can you see out of those glasses? It's like, you know, and then, and then he'd just look at me and I'd wash his glasses, sometimes with detergent. <laughs> and so I washed them this morning before I put them on. Joan leans on the casket as she talks. She says having Mike's body so close has made his death more real. I'm learning something about myself. I'm one of these people that when something's happening, like you put your finger through a saw or, you know, somebody jumps out in front of you with a car, I scream, ah, while I'm doing what I need to do, right? Then I'm all real calm. And then I do whatever else I need to do. And then later, I howl. Joan spends a lot of the vigil with her friends. She reviews her history with Mike and works through some of the issues they never had a chance to work out together. I've known him since he was 18 and I was 21. I'm an older woman. We dated. Um, and then we just went apart without any kind of negativity whatsoever. Just I was on a different track. He was on a different track. And then in... 87 he showed up at a time when I was very vulnerable and he swept me off my feet we ran off and got married and by 91 we were split up so we were together four years so in 2004 there was a phone call in July where this woman was asking me who I was and if I had been married to Michael Posh and I was instantly defensive and said why are you asking he was a stroke victim and had lost speech and occasionally had a hard time really understanding the word that you said. And he was partially paralyzed on his right side. He didn't have very good, he couldn't do two-handed things anymore. And he was a seizure victim. I just freaked out. She said, well, he's okay. I said, uh-huh. So I asked her to ask his friend to ask Mike if he wanted to see me. And there was an enthusiastic yes, and so that's when it started. Mike lived in a skilled nursing facility, but Joan managed his medical care, bills, and paperwork. She also helped him tie up loose ends in his social life. I asked him, um, would he, that uh, I'd make an agreement with him to help him make, build a bridge back into the community, and would, would that be good for him? And he was absolutely elated because he knows, he pretty much knows how I am. And, um, and I've been his person ever since. Joan often brought Mike to her house to give him a break from the facility. She says taking care of Mike in his death isn't that different from caring for him when he was alive. When I first started bringing him here, he was sitting here and he was watching me, just taking it in, like, like watching TV. And I asked him about that because I was feeling watched and I'm going, ah. He's, and, and, he, and he communicated how good that was to be here and just to be watching me do things. He's very much an observer of life. Sit back, smoke, drink, watch. 
or in the woods, sit back, watch. In some ways, I'm feeling um, like he's just here watching. I don't feel like I have to dance for him. I don't do anything for him other than bring him here and be with him. after Mike died and Joan brought him home. People have come to visit and talk. Neighbors dropped off beef stroganoff and took the dog for a walk. Joan's Kleenex supply has dwindled and she's running a little low on Jack Daniels. In less than an hour, Mike will be picked up to be taken to the crematory. Joan sits in a rocking chair in front of the casket. Um, I think I, I, the first day I was busy doing, doing, doing. I got more emotional, I really did. Oh, I played music, um, rocked in the rocking chair, um, talked to him, pet his beard. <laughs> every time I passed him in the study, I just knocked on the lid every time I passed. I'd say something at the box. You know, it was very interesting. It felt very cozy. That's what everybody said, too. This feels really cozy. Hmm. This is very nice. Having Mike at home gave Joan a chance to get closure with him and also their relationship. People who visited did some of their own healing. At each death, people come and bring all the previous deaths they've experienced to that one. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in this room around this coffin with this man in it. Not everybody came in. Everybody can handle it. And I think some of my neighbors just like didn't even want to look at me because they had a dead body in the house. <laughs> but... Um, most of the people that came here were feeling really good about being here. And everyone told stories about people who died in their lives. And when you, every time you tell a story about your mother dying, your father dying, or whatever, something else happens. And, um, and it's good. It's a good thing. I just um, called my friend this morning and said... I'm changing the name of the cul-de-sac to Bates Place, and I'm keeping them. <laughs> it's like I want to hold them longer. Um, I couldn't imagine any other way ever again. Well, it's just the big philosophical thing of not tossing a body out. You know? It's like, No. You know, the the animation is missing, um, and, and this was the vessel. And, um, and it needs to be disposed of, but I'm not, there's not this quick toss-out thing. And is that our guy? Because Joan doesn't have a car large enough to hold a coffin, Heidi asked a funeral director to help transport the body. Joan sees the shiny white hearse pull into her driveway. Here's your ride. Heidi arrives, and several of Joan's friends gather to help carry the coffin. Well, I'm gonna, we're gonna pass it down as we go. They maneuver it through the door of the study. Ready? Take the yeah. What do we do? Lift up. Then carry it down the front steps to the car. Nice ride. I don't think he's done Cadillacs much. Kind of a Ford guy, Chevy guy. 
All right, bye, sweetie. Mm. Mwah. Okay. I know I want to be cremated and my ashes scattered into the ocean. I think buried just because uh, most of my family is Catholic. For me, I'd just rather be cremated, spend eternity in, the, in a coffin with the worms. I kind of like the idea of being put in a, like a muslin sack and thrown in the ground. The whole spreading your ashes to sea thing is kind of quaint. I'll be cremated and I would like the ashes put in the compost. I want to be planted in a forest and uh, have an Oregon cherry put on my grave. And at my prime, I want to be cut down. And I would like to be made into bowls and spoons and musical instruments. Kirsten both decided to have their spouses cremated. Neither had a set framework of what to do with the ashes, so they both came up with their own rituals. One of the reasons I didn't scatter her ashes is I thought, and I, and I think I was right, that it is important to have a place that you go to that you connect with the person. And for most people, I think that's a graveyard. And so what I ended up doing... Um, I guess in the same spirit as building the coffin, I built the memorial. And we have a place up on a creek, a couple of acres in redwoods and so forth, uh, that meant a lot to us. And so I walked the uh, property and found the place uh, that has turned out to be perfect. It's a combination of a, a dead tree and a living tree. What I found was about a half of a stump that had been hollowed out, creating a little enclosure um, and then towering above it are the trees that in the last hundred plus years have grown out of that. And then out of redwood, I built a memorial. That's a series of shelves and an altar of sorts. Um, while, while her ashes are there, that's less important than the fact that that's the place I go when I want to immerse myself in her. Monday morning, um, we had an appointment at nine o'clock to have him cremated. Um, so we all lit candles leading out to Brian's chariot, his truck that he loved so dearly. We're singing the songs that we'd been singing for the last three days and loaded him up and drove to the funeral parlor and um, we all got there and Troy and I pushed him in and closed the door and pushed the button and, you know, it was beautiful. I gathered up everyone, all his surf crew and 
We went up to Brian's favorite surf cove and it was beautiful. It was all calm and there were small waves and they were like perfect size. And as soon as we went to go scatter his ashes, the waves just started getting big and huge and just pounding on the beach. And we all were in holding hands right on the shore and in this cove and the waves were just coming right up on us and splashing us over and then his friends took some of his ashes on the surfboard with all the flowers and paddled him out there to the waves and put him on a wave and pushed him onto the wave. The rituals Jim and Kirsten created had a profound effect on their children. Jim talked to a therapist who worked with his son. He had just turned seven. I went over and talked to the person who did the counseling, and I asked her um, well, a couple of things. I said, first of all, what's, you know, what's up with him? How's he doing? She said, well, let me give you this. And she gave me a thing of you know, the 10 signs of uh, incipient trouble when somebody's gone through a tragedy or some upset of some sort. Things like, uh, you know, uh, sleep patterns change, eating patterns change, they regress, they, uh, they don't want to talk about the future anymore, they have emotional fits, uh, crying jags, you know, um, don't want to be with friends, I mean, all kinds of little signs. And I laughed and looked at this and said, well, good, I've got all these, what does that mean? And she said, well, that's, that's, that's pretty normal, that's fine. And I went down the list and I said, he doesn't have a single one of them, not one. And I asked her, well, what should we do? Should we together continue in counseling? Should I put him in something? And I said, well... There's really nothing to work on. You've done all this work with him without even knowing it to, to make it present for him without hiding things so he doesn't wonder. He's dealt with it. He's doing fine. There's really nothing to do. I think overall that Troy was happy that we had a home funeral um, and that he got to experience seeing his dad and seeing how it affected other people. It was very hard for him to... Even Friday, all he could do was walk into the room um, and walk out. Um, Saturday, he sat in the room but really couldn't look at him. He'd look at him and then look away, look at him and then look away. I think it was really hard for him. I think it was really just it was really hard for him to see his dad dead. By the end of Saturday night, he actually came in and uh, wanted to hang out with his dad. So now he's like, okay, now I can hang with my dad. So he brought his guitar out and sat in the room and, you know, asked his buddies to come and, you know, let's go play with dad. Because that's what they did every night was, you know, play guitar together. I honestly don't know where all these ideas came from um, about having an altar or what to do with the ashes or building a memorial or building the coffin for God's sakes or why I pulled Jesse in and had him do everything. No, it's just improvising as you go along. You know, I've heard people say thank you so much to me for what I had provided um, for him and how you know beautiful that was and I just felt like he was divinely guiding me the whole way I had no idea it was just being channeled through me uh, helped me participate in his passing 
I didn't feel helpless. I felt um, effective. I had to be able to reflect back on um, the love. I got to share my love with him. I got to honor him how um, he honored me. And I think, you know, after somebody dies, you're just kind of going, wow, wow. So I'm just trying to take it moment by moment. It's uh, it's always going to be a central fact in the rest of my life, no question. I mean, you can't be with somebody for 25 years, grow up with them, and then lose them suddenly um, and horribly in front of your eyes and not be affected. Um, but it no longer is the defining thing about me. It's central but not defining. And it, it doesn't inform my every action anymore. I think right now I'm in a state of being out of shock from it and I'm more into this is a reality now is that I um, am a widow. evening, a few hours after Mike was picked up from Joan's house. At 6.30, Joan and Heidi arrive at the crematory. Oh, is that the door? That's Mike! Ho! Ho! Hi! Hi. Okay. Thanks. Hi, Bill. Hi. NorCal crematory, Bill. Hi. Come on over here. I understand that you want to push the buttons. Yeah. Joan decided to be as involved as possible in Mike's cremation. So Bill shows her how to operate the cremation chamber. Turn that on. Press that. Then turn that on. There you go. Now you've started the afterburner. Now it's going to take between 5 and 10 minutes to heat up. The afterburner burns off all of the fumes. This is going to go up to 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. So now at this point, I'm going to step back. And if you want to say your last goodbyes or your prayers or whatever ceremonies you want to have, you do so and let me know when you're ready. See this place, man? This is really cool. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. You're really dead. Frosty, too. God, you have pretty pants. Okay. <clears throat> Temperature is now 12:35. I'm thinking of that Johnny Cash song. 
three more minutes to go. I can see the mountains, I can see the sky, but three more minutes to go. So you hold your thumb on it and hold it, don't let it go. The door is going to raise up all the way to here. When it's up here and it won't go any more, then you can let it go. I'm going to slide the casket into the retort, and then at that point, when it's all in, you'll hit the red button, it'll come all the way down. Okay? See ya. It's been a pleasure. Okay, now, turn that one on, and that one on. Okay. Right now the burner just came on and the flame is coming down on the casket and it's igniting it. This is so nice. Sir, thank you. I'm not crying. Good job, Joan. Well, I'm going to come here tomorrow morning after the big traffic bump I'll be here. And then I'm just going to drive him around and talk to him. Joan and Heidi leave Bill behind to watch over the remaining two hours of the cremation. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Oh Lord, thank you, sir. My that's my Jack Daniels. I was gonna drink. Oh, can't forget that. <laughs> Thanks. Do you guys want some Jack? Just a little. Let's go on. Let's. Which hood should we hang on? You know, Mike is not in there. He's just right here because this is where the party is. Lachaim. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Hey, Mike. Joan gets home from the crematory and sits in her living room. The couches are still pushed to the wall to make room for guests. Dishes are piled up in the sink. And there's a stark gap along the wall of the study where Mike's casket no longer sits. Joan sips a glass of water and reflects on her experience of bringing Mike home. There was something about him being here um, that kind of let me be in the moment of what this was and not kind of running around arranging things. So I haven't packed this stuff away. I think I'm, I'm, in some ways I'm feeling free and, you know, freed up. I mean, freed, like, like lighter and, and because of that, it's almost like I can appreciate who he was better. Does that make sense? It enabled me to explore the depth of my feelings for him. Damn it. <laughs> and also to understand how much he, how much space he took up in my life and my consciousness. Um, you know, you just sort of don't know until you measure. And loss is a good way to measure. I, I'm, I'm really aware, ooh, I'm really aware of the, the whole. <sighs> yeah. And it's the, he's not here. I can't pretend like he's going to wake up out of that beautiful pine box. I can't talk to him. I loved his hands. I can't look at his hands, stroke his hands. 
that was good to do that. Even though he was dead in a doornail. So now I just have his empty boots and all that stuff. So. So now I'm going to grieve. I grieved a lot of things already. The fact that he had a stroke. The fact that he couldn't talk. The fact that he had seizures. The fact that his family didn't support him. And then the fact that he wouldn't quit smoking. And then the fact that he got cancer. But now it's all about me. You know. I don't know what happens on the other side. Um, but my belief is that we are at least all one giant we're all in one giant soup on one side or the other of life and the more we can sweeten the soup the better it is and this was sweetening Sometimes I